Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Hello, my dear listeners. I really feel like the summer months have gotten away from me. I've had visitors, family, friends, plus I've done a little bit of traveling myself, and I'm hoping to get back on some kind of a weekly posting schedule here with The Forge, uh, similar to what I was doing before the month of July. In any event, I hope you've been having a great summer also. Um, I certainly have. I want to stay dedicated to uh, verse-by-verse coverage of the Bible on this particular podcast, but one of the things that I've been thinking about starting as a sister podcast to The Forge, I've had folks bring up Bible questions to me, and I've had uh, some folks express a desire um, to address specific subjects topics, um, if that's what you wanted to call it, like a topical type of teaching or things that deal with current events, um, things that we deal with on a daily basis. So uh, please pray with me and for me as I consider next steps. I do work full time outside of this podcast and taking on a second project right now would be a lot more added to my plate. And I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying there's a lot of variables to consider. So let me know what you think. 
you can always reach out to me through the link that you will find with each episode. With all that out of the way, let's pick up our study in Genesis chapter 22. This time we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 23. So buckle up and get ready for another look into God's Word. May He truly bless its reading and its hearing. Beginning in Genesis chapter 22, verse 3, the Word of God. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and We will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So of the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and I and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, 
his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chased, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reuma, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Mekah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, and the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So let's go back here a bit and look at the first five verses, Genesis 22, verse 3 through 8. 
what can we learn from this particular passage? Well, the first thing we can notice is that there was no outward resistance from Abraham to the command of God. There's also no delay. God's word tells us that Abraham got up early the next morning to do what God had commanded him to do. Notice he did not discuss this with his wife. This was a command from God to Abraham, and he didn't say anything about, uh, and God didn't say, that is, God did not say anything about telling anybody else. So Abraham brings the wood and the fire, and this shows that he was not even looking for a way out. He didn't know if there would be wood at the place where he was going, but he did not even leave that as a possibility for an excuse for himself. So just think about that. We learn from this passage that Abraham has finally reached the place of obedience to God. And here are some other things to consider as we look at this narrative. If you have a map in your Bible or if you have a study aid where you can look this up, I encourage you to take a look. The distance from Beersheba to Moriah, which is where Jerusalem uh, will eventually be, it was about 30 miles. So considering the method of transportation, which we read was a donkey and accounting for Abraham's age. The journey took two full days and part of a third day. So at least in my mind, this raises a question. It raises several questions, but here's one. Why did God choose this place? Well, the answer is that as the story unfolds, we're going to see a foreshadowing of things to come. In the future, from Abraham's point of view in time, the temple would be built here. Many sacrifices are going to be offered on this mountain. Also in the future, the Son of God will be offered as the ultimate sacrifice on a hill nearby this particular location. So God does not do anything without reason, without order, even if you and I do not see it at the time, there is a reason that God is doing the things that he is doing. Notice also here that Abraham promised the young men who were most likely his servants that both he and Isaac would return. He wasn't lying. He really believed that somehow God was going to raise a great nation from Isaac. And he also knows, and it's pretty logical, that cannot happen if Isaac is dead. He knew that somehow, beyond his understanding, God was going to make Isaac live even after Abraham had slain him as a burnt offering on this altar. And I want you just to imagine this kind of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 through 19, listen to what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, 
And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So the writer of Hebrews makes the case here that Abraham knew God had the power to raise up his son, his son Isaac, from the dead. Now, Isaac's resurrection, so to speak, here is in the figurative sense, which is what it says here in Hebrews 11, in that Isaac never really died. But Jesus' resurrection was a real resurrection. You see, this entire story that we're reading about here with Abraham and Isaac, it is a direct picture of what Jesus would be and what Jesus would do for those who trust him. I think of all those people through the years who have given their lives for the faith. And they have done so knowing that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God that will indeed raise them from the dead. Think of it. What compels a person to lay down their life and say, do what you will. God is greater than you and you may kill this flesh. But my God will raise me from the dead just as he did his only begotten son. And so now we see Abraham telling his young men that he and Isaac are going to go away to worship, but that they're going to come back. But what does it mean to worship? What does that word mean, worship? Well, it means to ascribe worth. When we worship God, we are bowing down to him. We are saying that he is the only one of worth. So when we sing our songs and our worship services, what we're actually saying is, God, we ascribe worth to you. We bow down to you. And I would add that the ultimate worship is the bowing of our will to God's will. So as we consider the story of Abraham and Isaac here, I just want to bring out some interesting parallels between this account that we find here in Genesis and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, as we are just now talking about worship, submitting to God's will is the ultimate act of worship. Notice that Jesus bowed his head in John 19.30 when he gave up the ghost. The ultimate act of worship and submission to God, the Father, Jesus, bows his head. And notice that the two young men are left behind. They could not follow Abraham, the father, and Isaac, the son. And remember, there were two men that were crucified on either side of Jesus. But they could not follow him either. They could not follow him in the act of him offering himself for his people. They were within sight, but they could not go all the way. You see, only Jesus could. We see that Abraham, the father, compelled Isaac, the son, to come along. 
And we see that Isaac the son submitted to the will of his father Abraham, just as Jesus submitted to the will of his father. You know, Isaac was relatively young compared to the older Abraham. Isaac could have fought his father and escaped. Isaac could have said, okay, let me get this straight. You're going to take me up on this hill and you're going to kill me on an altar of sacrifice before God? Uh, I don't think so. But Isaac didn't do that. He did not fight his father. He did not escape. He submitted to the will of his father. And Jesus could have called thousands of angels, but he did not. What did Jesus do? He always did the will of the father. The scripture tells us always. In John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, no man taketh it, meaning my life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And we remember that Jesus also prayed what? Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Talking to God, the father. So the father commanded and the son obeyed because they went both of them together, all of God's chosen people can be saved. But there's even more as we look at verses 9 through verse 14. In Abraham's mind, Isaac was already dead. Did you catch that? See, Abraham knew. He knew three days ahead of time what God had commanded him to do. How many days did it take them to get to Mount Moriah? Three days. How long was Jesus dead and buried? Three days. Did you notice that the wood was placed on the back of Isaac to be carried to the altar just as Christ's back was bound against the wood of the cross? And Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham answers, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And in John 129, we read this famous quote, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And of course, this is referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And geographically, Mount Moriah is the same location as Mount Calvary. God calls Isaac Abraham's only son, just as Jesus is God's only son meaning the son of promise. There's only one son of promise. We also uh, read here in this particular passage, um, the name of the place being called the Lord will provide, or you may have heard the term Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. But another meaning of this phrase, Jehovah Jireh, means the Lord will appear. And remember, Moses wrote Genesis. Okay, so Moses, we haven't even gotten to Moses yet. He hasn't come along yet. But Moses is believed to be the author of the book of Genesis. And he notes here that even in his day, the people are still calling that particular mountain by this particular name, the Lord will appear or the Lord will provide. And they would say, in that mountain, the mountain of the Lord, provision was 
made. Listener, what a beautiful picture this is of the cross of Calvary. The Lord made provision on the mountain that day. So as always in the book of Genesis, we're on the lookout for the use of first, first things, first words. And here in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 19 now, we have the first use of the word obey. The first use of that word obey in the entire Bible. Here it is in Genesis 22. So as a reminder, the reason we make such a big deal about that is because when a word is first introduced in the Bible, what follows is the explanation of how that word is to be acted upon or how we should understand that word. We learn the true definition of the word by how God reveals it for the first time in Scripture. So it's not fair, it's not correct to take that word and use it any way you want. No, we want to use the word the way God intended for it to be. Because God is explaining to us how to do it or what it should look like. So when we come across that word for the first time, we want to see what is being talked about here. The word is obey. So when we obey God, it should look like what Abraham did right here. He did it immediately. He got up early in the morning, remember? He did it without hesitation. And he did not explain to anyone who was not directly involved. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. He said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Notice the blessings which Abraham receives. And notice also that Abraham loved God more than his own son, Isaac. You know, Jesus loves his children. Our God is a God of love. But Jesus demands total submission. Jesus is king. But look what happens here. God states that he will bless Abraham personally, bless Abraham himself abundantly. He says he's going to make Abraham's descendants as innumerable as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. And this is just a reaffirmation of what God has already promised. He promises that Abraham's descendants would prevail against their enemies and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed. And if you go back and you look at this passage, you're going to see that the word seed is used three times in these promises. Three times. And notice that it is singular. It's not plural. It's not seeds. It's seed. Well, there's only one seed by which we are saved, and that is Jesus Christ, the only Son of the living God. It's only through that seed that all the nations are blessed because he is calling to himself members of every tongue, tribe, and nation. It is through that seed 
that those descendants have become innumerable as the stars and as the sand of the sea. So let's move on to verses 20 through 24. And we are now shown that there's still some contact between Abraham and Sarah and the folks back home, so to speak. Uh, It was customary for a wife to be found from among your own people. That is extended family. They were, after all, at this time, uh, patriarchal uh, tribes uh, becoming and growing into nations. So it was not uncommon for an uncle to marry his niece, as we see here with Nahor and Milcah. And at this point in human history, I would point out to you that God had not given a command uh, yet at this point to not marry a close relative as he does later in the book of Leviticus. So as kind of a refresher here, Isaac was born so late in Abraham's life that he was more along the age of Nahor's grandchildren. And this is where Rebecca is mentioned and she is the grandchild of Nahor. She is mentioned because, as we will see in coming chapters, she will become Isaac's wife. And now it is time for a James opinion, a J.O. I believe that it's possible that this portion of Scripture was, was recorded by Isaac himself, And it was kind of like a for the record kind of thing. And he wrote down the names of certain members of his wife's extended family. That said, um, I'm always fascinated by the names of people we find in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And sometimes people take giant leaps uh, with the names that we find in Genesis. So I would just take, take this with some caution here. We must be careful not to do this. However, it is still fascinating to me, and I'll just share some thoughts with you here on some of the names we see. Some people believe that Huz here in Genesis could be the Uz of Job chapter 1, verse 1. I think it's probably not the same person. It's more likely that the Uz of Job is the listed son of Aram, who is listed, uh, who is one of the sons of Shem that we find in Genesis chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. And since Job is the oldest book of the Bible, and some believe Job lived earlier than Abraham, that's more likely the case. So while this kind of trivia is interesting to me, and perhaps it's even interesting to you, we should remember that it's truly not that important. Is it fun? Yes, it is fun for me a little bit anyway. Like I said, I I get fascinated with their names and and I look for connections that may or may not be there, but it's not relevant. And that's what I want to point out to you. It's not relevant to the purpose of Scripture. And what is the purpose of Scripture? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. Kind of went off on a tangent there for just a little bit, but... um, I hope you can uh, bear with me on that, and I hope it's fun for you too. But the point here is Rebecca is mentioned because as we're going to soon study, she will become Isaac's wife, and there's a beautiful picture there. You're just going to have to wait until we get to that portion of Scripture. Moving on to Genesis chapter 23, 
verses one and two, we see that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, dies. And she's the only woman in all of Scripture whose name and age at the time of her death are recorded. And think about that. What an honor. You know, if Abraham is considered to be the father of all believing men, as the word tells us, then it follows that Sarah is actually the mother of all believing women. I encourage you to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and you'll see what I mean. But Sarah's death was probably mercifully sudden, since it appears that Abraham was away. And why do I say that? Well, I say that because the scripture tells us that Abraham had to come to where she was to mourn for her. And if you're coming to a place, that means you came from somewhere else. Surely he would not have left her if she was in failing health. And we really don't have any record of failing health. A lot of times in scriptures, it'll let us know that the time is getting close and this person is going to pass away. With Sarah, it seems to be kind of abrupt. So think of the great faith of Sarah. Think of the lessons that she had learned over her life as she watched God keep his promise and give her a son, even though she had done some things that were truly sinful and truly wrong, laughed and scoffed and came up with this scheme with using Hagar and God didn't say anything about doing it that way. That wasn't God's plan. And yet now at the end of her life, she had seen the promise of God come true in spite of her own sin. From verses three through nine and other verses from above that we've already talked about and we've studied, we see that Abraham and Sarah had moved back to Hebron from Beersheba. And note that Abraham, at least as far as what the Bible says, he did not own any land. All of his wells that he dug and all the altars that he made, they were all done by his own work, and there's no record of him ever buying land. And if indeed he did not own any of the land, he must have leased it as he was traveling through. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, we're told that Abraham sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles. Here in verses 3 through 9, we see that he had to buy land just to bury Sarah. We know that Abraham and I could probably say Sarah also desired that Sarah was to be buried in Canaan. And this was probably meant to be a testimony for the coming generations that this land was promised to us by God. In other words, we will live here and we will die here. This is ours. And so we see an exchange that happens here. It's customary bartering uh, of the ancient East, and it's still the way that uh, deals are struck uh, during, even in our present day, uh, in many places around the world. And I would point out to you here that Abraham is a prince of 
God. That's what I would call him. And he's even recognized by the men here in the gate as a prince among them. In other words, they could see the hand of God and the good fortune, so to speak, that had come upon Abraham. But notice that he bowed himself before the people. And I see here an example for what Christians ought to do today. That is, we're not to be arrogant in our dealings with others. We're not to be arrogant when we talk to non-believers. We can be firm, and I'm not in any way implying here that we should just lay down and let them walk all over us. But we can be firm at the same time being humble and loving. You know, we can approach the non-believer um, and we don't have to have a begging attitude nor an attitude of superiority, but an attitude of respect. And that's what we see here with Abraham. Even though we are now princes and princesses of God ourselves because of Christ, it doesn't give us any right to treat people with arrogance. And we see in verses 10 through 18 that Abraham did not even haggle over the price. No doubt the price was inflated because remember in the bartering type system, this first offer that comes out is probably just a way of the seller to uh, get what he actually wanted because he knows that he's going to be talked down off the real, off the first price that he says. And so the expected turn in these types of negotiations is that it would go back and forth until a price was a, a price was agreed upon. But notice that Abraham just takes the first price that is put out there, you know, 400 shekels. But hey, what's that between us? It's just 400 shekels. But this business was carried out also in front of the audience of the children of Heth in the city gate. In other words, they were witnesses that this was a quote-unquote fair deal. In other words, it was legal between Abraham and Ephron. So when Abraham agreed upon the price, it was probably a surprise to everyone that was involved, but the silver was measured out and it was accepted as fully negotiable among the merchants of the city. And it was a done deal. I think it's important at this time to address a so-called contradiction in the Bible. If you look in Acts chapter 7, verse 16, Stephen says that Abraham bought a sepulcher in Shechem from the sons of Emor. The Bible also says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 13, that the sons of Jacob buried Abraham in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which was bought from Ephron, the Hittite. Further, in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, it says that Jacob bought the land in Shechem, this is also recorded in Genesis chapter 33, verse 19. So which is it? Can the Bible be trusted? Have we found a contradiction here which proves once and for all that the Bible is false? Um, no, <laughs> no. And I would also say that 
if you were a skeptic and you pointed this out, my first um, answer might be something along the line of, is that all that you've got is really, that's, that's the reason that you're going to say that uh, the Bible isn't true is because of this apparent contradiction. But let's get into it here a little bit and let me explain. There could have simply been two different places for burial. These two sites are about 40 miles apart, and that's not really a big deal when you consider that people live and people die in different places. And even though they're part of the same family, we even see this today, do we not? So remember, the Bible doesn't record everything. It doesn't record every single last little tiny detail. And none of this happened in a vacuum. So we'll learn as we continue to survey the Bible that Jacob actually purchased the land for an altar. He didn't purchase it for a burial place, but he gives the land to Joseph. And Joseph was buried there with the others of the fathers. And that word fathers is in quotes It is a way of saying the rest of the Hebrew people who they had brought out of Egypt. And you can find this uh, for reference, Genesis 33, 20, Joshua 24, 32, and Acts chapter 7, verse 15 through 16, which is where Stephen makes that claim about the sepulcher being bought in Shechem. So we also know that Abraham lived for 38 years after Sarah. And he married Keturah and had six more sons with her. So maybe he bought another parcel of land for his second family near Shechem. It's not that uncommon and it's not that big of a deal. But we do see that Abraham would be buried with his first wife, Sarah. And again, these kinds of customs and things are not unheard of. It's just not that big of a deal. But here's my opinion on one of the strongest points to bring out if anyone ever brings this up to you. Look, Stephen says this, the Old Testament says that, which is it? Here you go. This is kind of probably where I would start. One of the strongest points is that no one at the time listening to Stephen had an issue with his statement. And he would know his audience. And his audience, being Jewish, would know their history. And it shows that it was understood by his audience. When Stephen said this, they didn't call him out, so to speak. And so what this tells us is that there was a knowledge among the people, his audience. It was either a tradition, or it was a widely known fact, or it was something that was just simply understood by the people. Oh yeah, I know what Stephen's talking about. He's talking about the sepulcher that our father Abraham purchased. It wouldn't really be seen as a contradiction. So you can see that this so-called contradiction is just like all the other so-called contradictions that people find in the Bible, and they try to bring it up. Context is key to understanding scripture. You have to look at context and you have to ask the hard questions. Who was the original audience? What was in view when this was being said? What was happening historically? What would they have understood? 
not what do I understand in the 21st century as a Gentile living in a country that as far as Stephen probably knew had never, it wasn't even discovered yet. So you can't take your 21st century way of looking at things and then read it back onto scripture. Context is key. And hopefully that's one thing that comes through as I uh, go through the Bible here verse by verse. These so-called contradictions are so easily explained and it's almost laughable when people bring them up. Now, that being said, remember what I just said a few minutes ago. Let's be humble. We can be firm. We can stand solid and strong on the word of God, but we need to be humble as we educate folks and let them know that what they see is a contradiction in reality, if they will apply equal standards and keep things in context, they will find that it's not really a contradiction after all. So in our last two verses that we're going to talk about today, Abraham goes ahead with the funeral plans for Sarah. And it says that he made sure that this would be the resting place of the bodies of the patriarchs and their wives until the day of the resurrection. Moses tells us and the readers of his day that Mamre is the same city they knew as Hebron, their future home in Canaan. And the reason I make reference to Moses here is because he is believed to be the author of Genesis. So what a great way to end this particular episode. See, we have the hope of the resurrection in Christ. And dear listener, this is not some fairy tale. This is not wishful thinking. The truth is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He is Lord over the earth. He is Lord over the heavens. He is Lord over life. And he is Lord over death. He rules it all. And he has promised eternal life for those who trust him. again for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you leave a voice message through the link i hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of god's word in daily living remember dear christian you are forgiven it is by grace that you've been saved through faith may you grow in christ in the study of the bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out, not only in you, but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God 
and others as you grow in him.